Hi FM, 101.9 megahertz of life. This is People of the Book on 101.9 Hi FM. It's our Friday, 11 to 12 AM slot, and we're talking books. I'm going to start off with a book that I'm most probably going to um, receive today. And I'm trying to get an interview with the author, hopefully for next week. It is the hottest political book in South Africa at the moment. It's written by investigative, investigative journalist Peter Louis Myberg. It's called Gangster State, Unraveling Ace Magashula's Web of Capture. And it has started the week of uh, being launched on Sunday with headlines in both the Sunday Times and the City Press. And Ace Magashula has been on the defensive for the rest of the week at the ANC's NEC conference in Irene in Pretoria. He spoke from the sidelines. He gave a press statement on Sunday evening using the ANC's mouthpiece uh, as his platform to he rebuffed these allegations. The ANC did criticize him for using the ANC to make comments that were really in his own politi- in his should have been made in his own personal capacity. What is the book about? So this is the press release. In spite of Cyril Ramaphosa's new dawn, there are powerful forces in the ruling party that risk losing everything if corruption and state capture finally do come to an end. At the centre of the old guard's fight-back efforts is Ace Magashula, a man viewed by some as South Africa's most dangerous politician. In this explosive book, investigative journalist Peter Louis Marburg ventures deeper than ever before into Magashula's murky dealings, from his time as a struggle activist in the 1980s to his powerful rule as Premier of the Free State Province, for nearly a decade, and his rise to one of the ANC's most influential positions. Sifting through heaps of records, documents, and exclusive source interviews, Marburg explores Magashula's relationship with the notorious Gupta family and other tender moguls, investigates government projects costing billions that enriched his friends and family but failed the poor, reveals how he was about to be arrested by the Scorpions, before the de- their disbandment in the late 2000s, and he exposes the methods used to keep himself in power in the Free State and to secure him the post of the ANC Secretary General. Most tellingly, in Gangster State, Marburg pieces together a pack of leaked emails and documents to reveal shocking new details on a massive Free State government contract and Magashula's dealings with the businessman who was gunned down in Santon in 2017. These files seem to lay bare the methods of a man who usually operated without leaving a trace. Gangster State is an unflinching examination of the ANC's top leadership in the post-Jacob Zuma era, one that should lead readers to a disconcerting conclusion, that when it comes to the forces of capture, South Africa is still far from safe. Peter Louis Marburg is an award-winning investigative journalist. He has done work on multi-billion rand contracts uh, at the price of the Passenger Rail Agency of South Africa. 
He's done work on, well, this is his, his journalistic work on shady intelligence projects at the State Security Agency, the SSA, and the hashtag GuptaLeaks. He's the author of the best-selling The Republic of Gupta. Marburg is a member of Scorpio, the Daily Mavericks celebrated investigations team. Today, he couldn't come onto the show because he is at the Zondo Commission. That's the Zondo Commission on State Capture. This is the book, Gangster State, and hopefully we'll be able to interview the author here on People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. High FM, your station of choice since 2008. You win with great prizes. Prices. This is People of the Book on 101.9 High FM when we're talking books. And I'm just going to finish off the first segment of the show talking about the book Gangster State about Asma Gashula. I just received a press statement from Penguin Random House Books a few uh, shortly a short while ago. Gangster State, Magashula caught out in a lie. In an interview with ENCA yesterday, Ace Magashula called the author of Gangster State, Peter Louis Myberg, a blatant liar and spoke of simple lies and false fabricated stories. Ironically, in the same interview, Magashula got caught out in a lie of his own. Yesterday on NCNA, Magashula claimed that the author of Gangster State, Peter Louis Myberg, didn't send him questions prior to the publication of the book. Magashula said, when did he send me 60 questions? Where did he send those 60 questions to? On Monday, however, in an interview on SAFM, acting national spokesperson for the ANC, Dakota Lechote, confirmed that 60 questions were sent to Magashule. These questions were sent to Mr. Magashule a long time ago, he said. Lechote went on to say that he also received the questions and personally shared them with Magashule. Penguin Random House can confirm that Peter Louis Marburg did send 60 questions to Asma Gashule by mid-February 2019 and that he was given 14 days to respond. However, no response was forthcoming. The publishing company says that we are not afraid of Mr. Magashule's threats. We will continue to stand by the author of Gangster State and we will continue to stand up for the freedom to publish without political pressure. So this is the book Gangster State. It is the investigative journalist Peter Louis Marburg's investigations into Ace Magashule, who is currently the Secretary General of the ANC. He is one of the top-ranking members of the party that just over a year ago we were told by the head of the party is going to be going through a cleaning process and there'll be a new dawn but it's difficult to believe that when such corruption doesn't just exist within the party but occupies the highest levels of the ANC power structures. Now on to a whole lot of other books for the rest of the show. The first book that I'm going to talk about is called Just Eat It. It's by Laura Thomas and then it says on the cover PhD and Laura Thomas, PhD, is a registered nutritionist who isn't afraid to say it like it is. Having had her own strained and weird relationship with food, she now helps her clients build a healthy relationship to food by helping them tune into their own innate hunger 
and satiety cues and disconnect from diet tools like meal plans and calorie trackers using a process called intuitive eating and other non-diet approaches. In 2016, Laura launched Don't Salt My Game, a podcast that calls out diet trends and myths to tell you what you really need to know to stay on top of your game. Laura was the nutrition consultant for the BBC One documentary Mind Over Marathon, where she supported people suffering from mental health problems, train for the 2017 London Marathon. She's an association for nutrition media nutritionist and has appeared on TV, on radio, and her writing has appeared in Hip and Healthy, The Huffington Post, The New Scientist, and Spectator Health. She provides comments for publications such as Men's Health, The Guardian, and Red Magazine. For a PhD, she is quite a hip-looking professor, doctor, and she speaks in the book. She writes in the book as if she's speaking to you. Um, very, very conversational. And she is taking on the diet industry and a whole lot of fake information about nutrition and as I mentioned earlier the big idea that she's pushing is intuitive eating to eat when you're hungry and to stop when you're full sounds so simple but in the west there are so many weird beliefs and practices around food that it actually might take a PhD in to tell us how to approach food just to give you a sense of what this book is like what do you want to eat close your eyes for a second, this is from the introduction to Just Eat It by Laura Thomas. What do you want to eat? Close your eyes for a second and just let that question sit with you. What did you pick out? Is it something that you usually eat? Is it something you have rules around? Is it something on your food list? You know that play, that your, you know, your, your bad food list, that place where all bad foods are relegated to. When was the last time you even asked yourself what you'd like instead of what you can or should eat. I work with people like this every day, people who spend 90% of their day worrying about what to eat, people who have spent an enormous amount of time thinking about if their fruit salad was too high in sugar or anxious about whether paleo or plate or plant-based is better, people who conceive elaborate rules about when, what, and how much to eat, people who need a PhD in maths to figure out how much they have to work out in order to earn a cookie based on what they've already eaten that day and how many carbs and proteins are in their other meals, people who have dedicated enormous amounts of time, money, energy, and other precious resources to solving the problem of what to eat. This is the world that we're living in. I know because, and then she says, um, we... Trust our phones more than we trust our bodies. I know because I have been that person. Despite having a PhD in nutritional sciences, I have experienced being in a weird, strained, and troubled relationship with food. I have two degrees in nutrition. I've done research at an Ivy League university. I read scientific journals for fun, but I still had a really messed up relationship with food. Having an education in nutritional sciences doesn't immunize you against being weird around food. In fact, Often, the more you know, the worse you get. Studies have shown that nutritionists and dietitians have the highest incidence of 
orthorexia and rigid eating. This is from the introduction to the book Just Eat It by Laura Thomas, Ph.D., where she makes an impassioned and a very, very researched call for normalcy in our relationship with food. And she pushes something that's called intuitive eating and other non-diet approaches. We'll be back with more books. Hashtag you don't have to be Jewish. This is People of the Book on 101.9 High FM, and we've got a whole lot of books to get through. Very exciting books. Uh, I hope that uh, when you go to a bookshop to buy the books that you're going to either take to book club or just to read, you will pick these books up off the shelf and recognize the title and the name of the author from this book show and give the book a chance. The first book we're going to continue the show with is a book that came out towards the end of last year. It was quite a big event because it's the fourth in a series. All of them have been bestsellers. The first of the four was called Shadow of the Wind, and that was a huge international bestseller. The author is Spanish, Carlos Ruiz Zafon. The book that has just come out now is called The Labyrinth of the Spirits, and it is the fourth book in the series, but it is also a bit of a standalone as well. You don't have to have read all the books. But before starting the latest novel by Spanish writer Carlos Ruiz Zafon, those of those who use books in the old-fashioned way, you have a print copy, might be wise to do some serious upper arm work at the gym. Electronic readers should guard their clicking fingers against repetitive strain. The 832-page book completes, as I said, a quartet of novels, accumulating around 1,400 pages before the fourth and final installment begins. It began with The Shadow of the Wind, a 15 million copy bestseller published in English in 2004, which was followed by The Angel's Game in 2009 and The Prisoner of Heaven in 2013. And as we read Zafron's novel, his characters are reading hundreds more, real and imagined. The quartet's umbrella title, The Cemetery of Forgotten Books, refers to a focal location, a secret labyrinthine library in Barcelona, where cherished and threatened texts are protected, and from which visitors are allowed to take away one title only. In the first book just before the Spanish Civil War, Daniel Sempere, the son of a bookseller who was one of the cemetery's curators, selected a novel called The Shadow of the Wind by an obscure author, Julian Coax. The small number of extant editions is subsequently searched out and burned by a mysterious collector. The middle books added other fictional fiction writers, uh, specifically David Martin, a pseudonymous producer of sinister thrillers, and the concluding novel introduces a third writer-illustrator, Victor Mateix, creator of a series of children's books which have become hard to find in Franco's Spain, called The Labyrinth of the Spirits. So even the titles of Zafron novels have subplots. Among the imaginary forgotten books, readers' memories of real literature are regularly nudged. Don Quixote is invoked in ways both small and large. And like Zaf and in the book 
um, the sequence also f- frequently flirts with Spain's other most famous cultural don. That's Don Juan. While the Monserfs, a captain and family in Dumas, the Count of Monte Cristo, are mined for names and plot lines as well. There are vigorous nods as well as, as well to Castilian history in the film El Cid. Spanish readers report references to writers such as Benito Perez Galdos and Eduardo Mendoza, but reading the English translation, us English readers won't necessarily get all those cultural or literary, Spanish literary references. A newly introduced main character in the labyrinth of the spirits is Alicia, a police agent in the fascist era of Spain's recent history. And that is obviously an explicit Spanish version of Lewis Carroll's Alice. Her name is Alicia, so that's Alice in Spanish, who just as typically was also the inspiration for a protagonist of eight lost Novels mentioned within the, um, the the labyrinth of the spirits, but Alicia is also compared to Cinderella. She has, like two of the women in Wilkie Collins's *The Moonstone*, a physical disability, and consciously or unconsciously, also seems to incorporate elements of Stig Larsson's Millennium series heroine Lisbeth Salander. Alicia is commissioned by the government to find Don Mauricio Valls culture minister in the Frank administration, who has disappeared mysteriously. Valls is a writer and book collector whose own secret library includes the rarest works. The solution to the mystery of the politician will in turn resolve the facts about the fictions of all these fictitious writers who've populated the series of books, Carax, Martin, and Mataix, and the later life of the character who started the whole quartet of Daniel Sampere. Across four long English novels, such emphasis on the power and pleasure of books would risk being thought a gesture to conservative views on education or a diversion from more pressing societal issues. But in Spanish history, the fate of literature has consistently been a test of the severity of legislative and ecclesiastical politics. So the concealed libraries and hunted for publications in the quartet represent Spain's shameful piles of books that were burned, redacted, banned, or hidden in secret libraries because of the moral policing of kings, cardinals, and dictators. This subtext is made explicit in the labyrinth of the spirits when a librarian directs Alicia to a text that was doubly suppressed. Be careful, because this is a censored book, not only by the government, but also by the Holy Mother Church. Amid the game-playing with known and unknown stories, Zaphon has a, ser- has a serious and angry political intent. The sections of the Labyrinth of the Spirits are named after the parts of the Roman Catholic Church's Latin Requiem, which underline the suggestion that the novels are a, lamenta- are a lamentation for Spanish and especially Catalan history. This is the type of thing that you can expect if you read Carlos Ruiz Zaphon's Spirit of the Wind Quartet Even though they are all Linked with major themes Throughout the four books Each book actually is a standalone So just to recap This one is called The Labyrinth of the Spirit And just as a brief overview As a child Daniel Sempera Discovered among the passageways Of the Cemetery of Forgotten Books 
an extraordinary novel that would change the course of his life. Now a young man in the Barcelona of the late 1950s, Daniel runs Sempere and Son's bookshop and enjoys a seemingly fulfilling life with his loving wife and son. Yet the mystery surrounding the death of his mother continues to plague his soul, despite the moving efforts of his wife, Bea, and his faithful friend, Fermin, to save him. Just when Daniel believes he's close to solving this enigma, a conspiracy more sinister than he could have imagined spreads its tentacles from the hellish regime. That is when Alicia Gris appears, a soul born out of the nightmare of the war. She is the one who will lead Daniel to the edge of the abyss and reveal the secret history of his family, although at a terrifying price. The Labyrinth of the Spirits is an electrifying tale of passion, intrigue and adventure. Within its haunting pages, Spanish, Spanish writer Carlos Ruiz Zafon masterfully weaves together plots and subplots in an intricate and intensely imagined homage to books, the art of storytelling and that magical bridge between literature and our lives. So that's, this is it's a huge book. It has been available for a, for a short while. It's available in the shops. The Labyrinth of the Spirits by Carlos Ruiz Zafon. Now moving on to another novel. This one is called The Distance Home. The author is Paula Saunders. And what elevates Paula from other debut novelists is that Paula is married to one of America's great fiction short story and award-winning novelists, George Saunders, who won the Booker Prize a few years ago for Lincoln in the Bardo. So she is half of quite a powerful American literary couple. She grew up in South Dakota. She's a graduate of Syracuse University Creative Writing Program and was awarded a postgraduate Albert Schweitzer Fellowship in the Humanities at the State University of New York at Albany. Um, under then Schweitzer Chair Tony Morrison. So not only is her husband a great author, she studied under Tony Morrison. She lives in California with her husband, who's the writer George Saunders. They have two grown daughters. The book is called The Distance Home. Must a child's past define their future? In 1960s rural America, two siblings grew up in a place of love and turmoil. Rene is the apple of her father's eye, an overachiever, athletic, she's clever, the best brain in the class and the best dancer in school. Her older brother, Leon, doted on by his mother, is shy, a stutterer, but also a brilliant dancer. Rene and Leon share a talent, but it is a gift their father adores in his daughter and loathes in his son. And that could make all the difference. These two children may be best friends, but life promises to take them down very different paths. Uh, in the copy that I've got, there's a letter from Paula Saunders to the reader, and this is what she says. The distance home is based on the story of my brother and me growing up in South Dakota and of our family life, how it influenced us and contributed to shaping the people we became. Our father and grandfather were both cattle traders, the old-fashioned kind, driving long distances, meeting ranchers, looking at livestock. Through a series of events, my brother and I became fairly serious students of ballet. Given the setting and culture of the Great Plains at that time, 
Along with the general tenor, prejudices and expectations of the family, this was of course easier for me than it was for my brother. In the end, after much turmoil and misdirection, he turned to drugs and alcohol, which became a lifetime struggle for him, while after difficulties of my own, I left home early to study ballet and ended up dancing in New York City as an apprentice with Harkness Ballet under one of the great ballet masters of our time, David Howard. Because of the disparate paths my brother and I ended up on in life, this family story is a complicated one for me, with a lot of attached feelings and judgments, and to write it, I needed to be able to see it from a different perspective, a perspective less tainted by personal pain and judgment and blame, and more informed by our impermanence here on the earth, and how the love we feel for each other can be buried by immediate concerns and circumstances, by hard feelings or long-held grudges, until sometimes we can't see the love anymore, or even if we can see it, we can't bring it into action. Of course, I love my brother. I always felt that his experience in our family pointed to issues in the larger culture, to how our ideas of winning and losing, of success and failure, led us inevitably into various problems with empathy and caring for one another, and how even the smallest whispered prejudices within a family can change a life. I knew it was there in my family, the deep love we shared for each other, but in the many confusions and rising circumstances of daily life, it most often seemed lost. But my hope in writing this book was to find it again, to locate the source of the love, to look at where it went awry, to try to trace the outlines of it without dismissing the many difficulties or glossing over things, and to show this love and connection finally somehow in an effort to benefit the hearts of those who might read the book. While I was writing The Distance Home, I had two words always just to my right, posted on my bulletin board, listen and benefit. So it was my intention with this book to write something that others could relate to from their experience, something that might illuminate a path to looking at one's most difficult experiences from a different perspective or in a new, more open way. So that's the idea of the distance home, to try to understand what happens in this family and to try to see past the hurts and the missed opportunities for caring and love and to get to the core because really there is so much love here. That's by Paula Saunders, a letter to readers of her book, The Distance Home. And the book is available in shops at the moment. The next book I'm going to talk about is a f- the, 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 the second novel written by Angie Thomas. Angie Thomas, her first novel was called The Hate You Give. It came out in 2017. It was a huge book. It was voted by on Goodreads as the most uh, the most popular young adult novel of the year and it was made into a movie in many ways it tells the story of growing up young in and black in america her second novel called on the come up was obviously a highly anticipated release on its publication 
and it has been very, very well received when it was released just last month. The publishers are calling it the must-read book of 2019. From the visionary Angie Thomas comes a story about hip-hop, prejudice, and fighting for your dreams. 16-year-old Bry wants to be one of the greatest rappers of all time, but it's hard to get your come up when you're labeled trouble at school and your fridge at home is empty after your mum loses her job. Bree pours her anger and frustration into her first song, and it goes viral for all the wrong reasons. Bree soon finds herself at the center of controversy, portrayed by the media as more menace than MC. Her success is all that stands between her family and homelessness, though, so Bree doesn't just want to make it, she has to make it, even if it means becoming exactly what the public expects her to be. So this is the premise of On the Come Up by Angie Thomas. It is a very, very highly anticipated book. And the praise that she received for her first book, The Hate You Give, is unbelievable. It was a New York Times number one bestseller, number one bestseller on Amazon UK's lists. It was um, mentioned by most the entire literary establishment as an important book. It's been accepted as a set work in a number of schools around the world. She's a young writer. She has her finger on the pulse of black America, and she's putting the experiences of black youth into her writing. So this is On the Come Up by Angie Thomas, and it is already available. The next book that I want to look at has also been available in the shops for a while. It's a spellbounding read. It really is. Everyone who's read it has been absolutely lost in the pages of the book. It's called The Binding. It's also a debut novel. It's by Bridget Collins. Emmett Farmer is working in the fields when a letter arrives summoning him to begin an apprenticeship. He will work for a bookbinder, a vocation that arouses fear, superstition and prejudice, but one neither he nor his parents can afford to refuse. He will learn to handcraft beautiful volumes and within each he will capture something unique, an extraordinary, a memory. If there's something you want to forget, he can help. If there's something you need to erase, he can assist. Your past will be stored safely in a book, and you will never remember your secret, however terrible. In a vault under his mentor's workshop, row upon row of books and memories are meticulously stored and recorded. Then one day, Emmett makes an astonishing discovery. One of those volumes has his name on it. We'll be back with more about the binding after this break. IFM 101.9 megahertz of life. We're talking about a book called The Binding by Bridget Collins. As you have most probably realized, Bridget Collins's fantasy novel begins somberly 
with its teenage hero Emmett being sent away from his family farm to become an apprentice to a binder of books, his week after a long illness of a mysterious nature. And from his family's strained behavior, we intuit that he's in some kind of disgrace that he doesn't fully understand. When he arrives at the isolated house of Serideth, the elderly woman to whom he's apprenticed, it's both an exile and a haven. He spends his days learning to make end papers, tool leathers, tool leather, gilding, the delicate physical labor of making beautiful books. But he soon realizes that the true work of binding is magical, manifested in the ways that lives are turned into stories. Distressed people arrive at Serideth's house, asking to have their traumatic experiences put down on paper. Once that is done, the memories are erased from their minds. They leave dulled but soothed, and in her cellar, Serideth keeps their secrets safe in gorgeous books with the subject's name on the spine. Of course, somewhere among them is a book with Emmett's name on it, which contains the secret of his disgrace. When Serideth dies, the books fall into the unscrupulous hands of another bookbinder, and Emmett is set on a path to recover his lost past. In many ways, the binding is an unpretentious work of escapist fiction. The morality of the book is simple, the good are essentially noble, and the enemies unambiguously wicked. The vaguely antiquated setting is reminiscent of a Thomas Hardy countryside. At the heart of the novel is a love story that develops along a familiar trajectory. From immediate dislike to inexplicable flutters of the heart to full infatuation with its feeling of being breathless and dizzy, as if my blood was too thin. But while some elements are over-familiar, every detail is bracingly specific and real. A room in a snow-bound country house, so quiet it was like walking into a picture. A man with whiskers but no moustache, so that his mouth sat in the middle of his face like an overripe fruit. A rose petal, so soft I can't feel where it begins. Bridget Collins also masterfully conveys the interior life of her characters, particularly the altered states of love, and the book becomes truly spellbounding as Emmett is drawn towards love and obviously uncovering some of the secrets of his of his past. This is the book The Binding by Bridget Collins. It's published by Borough Press, and it is also available in the shops. Uh, it was uh, promoted quite heavily in exclusive books, so you might be familiar with the beautiful cover of The Binding from some of those promotions. The next book that I want to talk about is a debut novel by an African author for the first time. Zambia has an epic novel which is putting Zambia on the map. The book is called The Old Drift. The author is Namwali Serpel, and this is a major debut, I think, for anywhere in the world, but especially for African fiction. Now, what I want to do is I want to read a little bit about the book and then a review written for the New York Times by Salman Rushdie. 
On the banks of the Zambezi River, a few miles from the majestic Victoria Falls, there was once a colonial settlement called the Old Drift. Here begins an epic story of a small African nation, told by a mysterious swarm-like chorus that calls itself man's greatest nemesis. The tale? A playful panorama of history, fairy tale, romance and science fiction. The moral? To err is human. In 1904, in a smoky room at the hotel across the river, an old drifter named Percy M. Clark, foggy with fever, makes a mistake that entangles his fate with those of an Italian hotelier and an African busboy. This sets off a cycle of unwitting retribution between three Zambian families, black, white, brown, as they collide and converge over the course of the century into the present and even beyond. As the generations pass, their lives, their triumphs, errors, losses and hopes form a symphony about what it means to be human. From a woman covered with hair and another plagued with endless tears to forbidden love, affairs and fiery political ones to hometown technological marvels like Afronauts, micro-drones and viral vaccines. This Gripping and unforgettable novel sweeps over the years and the globe, subverting expectations along the way. Exploding with color and energy, the old drift is a testament to our yearning to create and cross borders, and a meditation on the slow, grand passage of time. This is what Salman Rushdie has written with this novel. The old drift by Namwali Serpel. Something in, is happening in African literature. The women are coming. For decades now, a river of original and important writing by female authors has been flowing out of that continent. Books by writers such as Marlene van Niekerk, of whose second novel, Liesel Schillinger wrote in the New York Times, books like Agat are the reason people read novels. Then there's the author Tsitsi Dangaremga, whose book was Nervous Conditions, and of course Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. Now that river has burst its banks and become a flood, Namwali Serpel's extraordinary ambitious evocative first novel, The Old Drift, contributes powerfully to this new wave. We'll be back with more of this review of The Old Drift in a few moments. IFM 101.9 megahertz of life. This is People of the Book on 101.9 Chai FM. I'm talking about a book called The Old Drift by Zambian writer Namwali Serpel. And in order to launch it on this radio station, I'm actually reading the review written in the New York Times by one of the great men of contemporary letters, Salman Rushdie. Interestingly, many of the contemporary African books written by women overlap with and even echo one another. Zimbabwean Petina Gappa's forthcoming novel, Out of Darkness, Shining Light, takes on the subject of the explorer David Livingston and his African companions. The Old Drift also begins with Livingston, but then moves on. Serpel's novel is a multi-generational exploration of Zambia's past, present, and even its near future. Another recent debut, Harmatan Rain, by Ayesha Haruna Atta, looks at the story of Ghana through the lives of three generations of women. And in September, Maza Mingitze's The Shadow King will take on the subject of the Italian invasion of Ethiopia 
beyond, moving beyond history to a kind of modern myth-making and looking at history primarily through the eyes of its female characters. The old drift, too, incorporates elements of fabulism into the history of Zambia and again sees that history mostly through women's eyes. Novuyo Rosa Truma's House of Stone, she's Zimbabwean, and this book was published towards the end of last year, has already been highly praised for summing up not only Zimbabwean history, but also all of African colonial history, a large claim on behalf of any one novel. Equally large claims have already been made for The Old Drift, which early reviewers have garlanded with comparisons to Toni Morrison and Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Meanwhile, another recent novel, Jennifer uh, Makumbi's Kintu, has been called a Ugandan 100 years of solitude. Trailing clouds of glory, do they come? Uh, that book, uh, Kintu, we reviewed here on Chai FM last year, continuing with Salman Rushdie's review of The Old Drift. The Old Drift is a strong and confident enough piece of writing to stand on its own two feet, and it's perhaps not well served by being placed on the shoulders of giants. Its structure is formal, three parts containing three sections each, the grandmothers, the mothers, and the children. Each of the nine sections is centered on one dominant character, all women in the first two parts, and in the final section, two young men and one young woman. In between are to be found short, italicized sections narrated by an unnamed we, which work as a sort of Greek chorus commentary on the action. The novel tells the intertwined stories of three families, one white, one black, and one the product of an interracial marriage. The story makes jumps in time to tell the various dynastic tales until the three clans merge into one near the end. At first glance, this may strike the reader as overly schematic, but it doesn't read that way in tribute to the energy with which the stories are told and the vivid detail in which the world of the book is created. Historical figures mingle with fictional ones in these family sagas. Two years ago, in The New Yorker, Serpel wrote a lengthy non-fiction account of one of these figures, Edward Mukuka Nkoloso, a schoolteacher, revolutionary and astronaut, the head of the absurd Zambian space program, which trained young people to go to the moon by spinning them around a tree in an oil drum and teaching them to walk on their hands. Nkoloso and the astronauts play important parts in the old drift. In addition, two of the patriarchs of her fictional dynasties are real people. The hotelier, the Italian hotelier, Pierre or Pietro Gavuzzi, who ran the Victoria Falls Hotel at the early settlement near the waterfall known as the Old Drift, and the colonial-era traveller Percy M. Clark, the author of a guidebook to the falls written around 1910. Percy is allowed to tell his story and the story of the Old Drift's founding in the first person. After that, the third person and fiction take over. The novel's greatest strength lies in its creation of three unforgettable female characters. Agnes, the white upper-class English girl and granddaughter of Percy Clark, loses her sight and falls in love with a black man without knowing he's black, and expelled from her family, she follows him to Africa to become a gentle, grand presence throughout the book. Mata, one of Colossus astronauts, who following a heartbreak is afflicted by endless, unstoppable tears for the rest of her life, becomes known as the crying woman. Most striking of all is Sibylla, an illegitimate offshoot of the Gavuzzi family who suffers from extreme hirsutism 
every part of her body sprouting luxuriant hair. Sibylla and her hair, weaving, dancing, whirling, whitening into old age, dominate the novel and give it its defining imagery, its infinitely variable leitmotif. Hair is everywhere. Trails of hair are left so that lovers can find each other. Hair salons are opened and form the backdrop to crucial scenes. Hair is shaven off the heads of women mourners. What are you... What... What... Are you made of? One character demands, and the answer is one that the novel itself might give. Here, around these three iconic characters is woven a complex narrative of the founding and growth of Zambia, and in the book's second half of the arrival of and battle against what is referred to only as the virus, HIV, AIDS. This is a review of the book. The Old Drift, which Salman Rushdie finishes off by saying is an impressive book ranging skillfully between historical and science fiction, shifting gears between political argument, psychological realism, and rich fabulism. The book is The Old Drift. It's written by Namwali Serpel, a young Zambian author who is going to be making big waves in the literary world. And with that, we bring this show to a close. Hopefully next week we'll have an interview with Peter Louis Marburg, the author of Gangster State. I'm going to take my copy home and read it over this weekend. And until next week, good Shabbos and keep reading.